Joshua chapter 2, verses 17 through 21. Rated R for redemption. Joshua 2, 17 through 21. Rated R for redemption. Hear these words from the word. The men said to her, this oath you made us swear will not be binding on us unless when we enter the land you have tied this scarlet cord in the window through which we let you down and unless you have brought your father and mother, your brothers and all your family into your house. If anyone goes outside your house into the street, his blood will be on his own head, and we will not be responsible. As for anyone who is in the house with you, his blood will be on our head if a hand is laid on him. But if you tell what we are doing, we will be released from the oath you made us swear. Agreed, she replied. Let it be as you say. So she sent them away. And they departed, and she tied the scarlet cord in the window. I said to the second group of worshipers at 11 o'clock that the name Rahab, for the most part, does not appear without the dubious designation of prostitute alongside of it. She was the prostitute of the best little house in Jericho. Rahab the prostitute, Joshua chapter 2, verse 1. Rahab the prostitute, Joshua 6, verse 17. Rahab the prostitute, chapter 6, verse 25. Even in the New Testament, Hebrews eleven thirty-one, By faith, Abraham the prostitute, Rahab the prostitute, welcomed the spies and did not perish with those who were disobedient. And in the book of James, he says that Rahab the prostitute was justified by her works because she welcomed the spies and sent them another way. That dubious designation always follows her, both Old and New Testament, until we come to the genealogy of Jesus. She's always related to Jesus when it comes to a spiritual connection. Hebrews 11, verse 31. By faith, Rahab, the prostitute. But finally, we get to a place where she is named without the dubious designation. Matthew chapter 1, verse 5 and 6. It's the genealogy of Jesus. And it says that Rahab married Solomon. And Rahab and Solomon had a son by the name of Boaz. And Boaz married Ruth. And Boaz and Ruth had a son by the name of Obed. And Obed got married and had a son by the name of Jesse. And Jesse got married and had a son by the name of David. And out of David came Jesus. Therefore, Jesus came through the line 
of a prostitute by the name of Rahab. But Matthew drops that dubious designation because only in Christ are dubious designations dropped and iniquities erased. I find it so wonderful that God would consider David to be a man after his own heart, not only before his mid-year affair at 47 years of age, but after his mid-year affair. I find it wonderful that the waiting father, that is the father of the prodigal son, would own him as son before he goes to the far country and still call him son when he came back home. My son who was dead is now alive. My son who was lost is now found. That's because dubious designations and iniquities are erased when we are redemptively connected to Jesus Christ. Paul puts it this way in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1, verses 4 to 6. He says, you were once dead in transgressions and sins. Do you see that? The past. You were once dead in trespasses and sins. But verse 6, verse 4 of Hebrews chapter 2, of, uh, ex, of uh, Ephesians chapter 2 says, but now God who is rich in mercy because of his great love has made you to be alive in Christ Jesus. And he's done more than that. He's raised you up and caused you to be seated in heavenly places with Christ Jesus. I'm not trying to get to heaven. Heaven is already in my life. I'm already saved. Eternal life is already here. I'm not trying to work for salvation. I'm working from salvation. It's already here. We once were, but we now are. We were dead. It reminds me of the true story of Gordon and Norma Yeager. It's reported in October 2011 uh, by ABC News. Here's a couple who were married for 72 years. Gordon was 94 years of age, and Norma was 90 years of age. They were involved in an automobile accident in Iowa and taken to a hospital. They lay alongside of each other in their beds in a hospital room. Both had heart monitors. But while they lay alongside of each other, Gordon's heart stopped. He became ashen, and he died. He was dead, but he was laying alongside of Norma. And his heart monitors kept registering, saying he's alive. But he stopped breathing. He became ashen, and he was dead. But the heart monitor just kept on registering that he was alive. It was because even though he was dead, his hand was still gripped to Norma's hand, who was alive. And though he was dead, the heart monitor said, he's living. Ah, that's what happens to us. We were really dead in trespasses and sin. We were really dead. I mean, dead. But because we have a live Savior, we are alive. That's really what happened in 2 Kings chapter 13, verses 20 and 21, when uh, Elisha, of course, has died. They have put him in a grave. And uh, the Moabites, who uh, uh, perennially 
attack uh, the land of Israel. And uh, the people are taking a dead man to the cemetery. But because the Moabites start coming, they panic and just throw him in any old hole, not recognizing that the hole they threw him, him in was the grave of Elisha. And when that dead man's body fell in Elisha's dead grave and touched Elisha's dead bones, the Bible says that man got up. You think that's something? When my dead soul came in contact with the living Jesus, I rose. I became a living individual, and I had nothing within myself to do it. It's alien righteousness. It's foreign righteousness. Nothing in my hand I bring. Simply to the cross I cling. No wonder John can say in 1 John 3 and 1, what manner of love the Father hath bestowed upon us. Listen to this. That we should be called the children of God. That God would claim you as his child. Because in him, the dubious designations drop and the iniquities are erased. This is what happens to Rahab, who is no longer called the prostitute in Matthew chapter 1, verse 5. She's just one of the great-grandmothers of Jesus Christ himself. This story prefigures something. It points forward, and yet it points backwards. It points backwards to Exodus chapter 12, verses, 20, verses 12 and 13, particularly in verse number 22 and 23. In Exodus 12, 22 and 23, God gives instructions to Moses and says to Moses, look, I want you to tell the heads of the families to kill a lamb. It's a Passover lamb. And I want them to take that blood and smear it over the doorposts and lintels of their houses. And I want everyone in that family to stay in that house that night. Verse 22 says, no one is to leave until the morning. Because, verse 23, I'm going to send my death angel there. And when the death angel sees the blood over the doorposts and lintels of the house, then he will pass over. And that's one of the three mandatory feasts for the Jews that has to be celebrated annually. That is, every single year. It points backwards, this scarlet cord that gave Rahab's house divine protective custody. It suggests that everyone, not only suggests, but promises, that everyone that remains in her house where the scarlet cord is hanging out the window is under divine protective custody. And no one is to leave that house when Israel has made their invasion of Jericho. They are protected as long as they're under the blood. Inside the house. I hope you hear some redemptive reverberations here. That they're protected as long as they're under the blood. That's what chapter 2 of Joshua verses 17 to 22 says. That we are not responsible when the walls come down and the city is destroyed. For anyone who decides that they're going to go to the theater that evening. Stay in the house. And as long as you're under this scarlet red cord. As long as you're under the blood, red blood, then I will pass over 
and you will be protected. So it points backwards, but it points forward. Matthew chapter 26, verse 29. Uh, Jesus, of course, has kept the Passover. And what he has done is to say, look, I'm not telling you to offer up the Passover lamb. I am the Passover lamb. That's what John the Baptist was saying in John chapter 1, verse 29. Behold, look, the lamb of God who comes to take away the sin of the world. He is going to be slain. And Jesus says these elements, the bread and the wine. He says in Matthew 26, 29, I will not drink the cup with you until I do it with you in my Father's kingdom. And so this scarlet cord not only points forward to the New Testament Passover, who is Jesus, but it points forward to the marriage supper of the Lamb in Revelation 19 and 9, where you and I, as the bride of Christ, will finally have our reception, where the church triumphant and the church militant will sit in the banquet arena, and then the until will be over, and we will fellowship with him, and he will drink the cup with us, because we will never be able to forget the broken body, nor the shed blood, even in eternity, knowing that we have only overcome by the blood and by our testimony. So this story points backward to the Passover, forward to Christ, the New Testament Passover, and to the culmination of what we're doing tonight, where Christ will drink the cup with us to culminate and consummate what has been done by the believers all throughout eternity. God shows great patience and great long-suffering with Rahab. What mercy had the spies not been sent to Jericho? She would not have had an opportunity to vocalize her faith that God, Jericho, the God of Jericho, the God of Sihon and Og, though not willing, willingly, yet in a sovereign way, is the God of all the earth. And she had an opportunity to share her faith with the most difficult people in the world to share it with, her own family. It took time for the spies to get there. And then after she sent them uh, back to Shittim, where Joshua and the children of Israel were camped, the Bible says she said to them, stay in the hills for three days. These three days, I'm sure she's knocking on doors. For three days, I'm sure she's talking to her mother and her father, her brothers and sisters, and her extended family. Three days to share the gospel with the most difficult people in the world to share it with. That is with your family members and your extended family. And then after they got back to Shittim, it would take a while for Joshua to talk to the people and tell the leaders this is God's way of doing things and to organize them and to tell the priests to get in order. And as soon as their feet touched the edge of the Jordan River, God would dam up the waters upstream and let the other go down, and they would march over on dry ground. Not a couple hundred people. There were 660,000 soldiers that came out of Egypt. That is a marriageable age. There could have been a million and a half or two million people to cross the Jordan River. Older people, young people, parents with newborns, individuals with physical uh, deficiencies. How long did that take? And she's knocking on doors and talking 
to her relatives. Come on in the house. 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 When is Jericho going to fall? We don't know. It's inevitable. Come on in the house. You don't know the day nor the hour. Come on in the house. And then the Bible says when, once they crossed the Jordan River, however long that took, ready, set, wait, wait. We ready to go. Oh, no, 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 no. I've got to give more time to this. Have the men to be circumcised. Now, if that doesn't slow down some action. <laughs> Lord, we're getting ready to go into battle. You are going to make the men impotent? You're going to make us weak? Yes. Because you got to understand that you only win the battle, not through your strength, but through mine. And they are circumcised. And then, of course, there's recovery time. And she's taking all this time to witness and to share the truth with her family. And finally, when they get ready to march around the walls, is one time for six days. And on the seventh day, here are, are the priests who are, in, who are in the middle and the avant guard and the rear guard, those in front and in back. And on the seventh day, they march around seven times. That's a long time. All that time. And finally, they shout, the shofar or the trumpet is blown, and the walls come tumbling down. And the Bible says in chapter 6 that these spies went to the house where Rahab was and rescued her and her family. It could have taken two weeks, perhaps, for the walls to come down after the spies left which gave her all kinds of opportunity in terms of time to share the truth with her family. No wonder Peter says in 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 9, God is not slack concerning his promises, as some folk count slackness, but is long-suffering toward us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. Some of you are sitting here right now, who give God praise for giving you time. Because you wouldn't be here on a Sunday night at 6 o'clock had God not gave you time. You had other things to do on Sundays. Not just Sunday nights, but Sunday morning. Some of you perhaps would just be getting in the house at 12 o'clock noon on Sunday. God has been gracious. God decided to let us hear the gospel. We have been in places where we should not have been with people we should not have been there with. We have been in danger. We have been so close to the edge of death and destruction. And we have not been careful. We have not been lucky. God has been graceful. God has kept us. If we could tell our story, people would be amazed. No wonder John Newton said, through many dangerous toils and snares, I have already come. It was grace that brought me safe this far, and grace will lead us on. I believe that we will weep in heaven. And one of the reasons I think we're going to weep in heaven because the Bible puts it in future tense. God shall, future. God shall, God shall wipe away all tears from our eyes. One of the reasons I think we will weep is when God rolls back the curtain of memory and shows us where he brought us from. And how he prevented death and destruction from overtaking us. We will weep tears of joy and thanksgiving 
had it not been for the Lord on our side, where would we be? Well, this woman, Rahab, is a woman who was given the opportunity to evangelize her family because God afforded her time. What about us? Yes, there are people in our family, and they are entrenched in obstinacy, stubborn, won't move, don't want to hear the gospel. And when you can't preach the gospel to them, be the gospel before them. Be a living epistle, known and read of all people, because people would rather see a good sermon any day than to hear one. Take with the silence of your conduct to live the gospel before people. And people will watch you and wonder, when you're supposed to cave in and give up, what keeps you ticking? What keeps you going? And they want to know, what side were you born under? Well, I was born under the sign of the cross. Um, do you take marijuana? No, I just, I'm just on Mary's Jesus. What about crack? No, I'm on Christ. What about heroin? No, I've got hope. My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus. I'm telling you, young people, people are watching you. They want to know, why is it that you determine that you're going to live a life of purity and chastity when everybody's doing it? And you decide that you are going to be the exception because you belong to an exceptional Savior. And he's able to help you to live in a way that you will bring glory and honor to his name. Let them, uh, let them call you what they want to call you. Um, but you'll be able to tell them in the final analysis, I haven't been in prison. You'll be able to tell them that I'm not on drugs. You'll be able to tell them that I'm not afraid when someone calls my number because my record is clear. And you'll be able to walk with great responsibility and not abrogate or cancel out future opportunities because you've chosen to travel the road less traveled. Here is Rahab who evangelizes her own family. Start with those in your house, with your family. And I know that they may turn a deaf ear, but love them anyway because your job is to only usher people into the presence of God for the purpose of transformation. Your job is not to transform them. Your job is to plant the seed. Your job is not to make it grow. Plant it. Water it. Fertilize it. And after you have watered and planted, only God can give the increase. Here is Rahab. She is justified. Just as if she's never sinned. Now, there seems to be tension between Paul and James because Paul, or rather, let me put it this way. Paul says in Romans chapter 5, verse 1, therefore, being justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. We're justified by faith. But James says in James 2, 25, that Rahab was justified by works. Because she welcomed the spies and sent them in a different direction. Now, wait a minute, Paul. You said justified by faith. James, you said justified by works. Now, wait a minute, wait a minute. Are you talking out of two sides of your mouth? Does the Bible contradict itself? Who's right? Who's wrong? Both. 
both are right. It's, it's a sanctified sequence. It's a providential process. Both are right, but you got to get the order straight. We are first justified by faith and is demonstrated by justification by works because you cannot work your way into salvation, but salvation produces works. Works don't produce salvation, but salvation produces works. It's what we call the indicative, who we are in Christ, and the imperative, what we do as a result of being in Christ. Works follow salvation. And the order has to be that way. If salvation by faith is justification by works, which is a product of our justification, and the order is important, so much so that you and I have experienced salvation. Number one, we are saved from the penalty of sin. The wages of sin... Romans 6.23 is death. We were dead in trespasses of sin, but we're saved from the penalty of sin so that now we are no longer penalized. The chains have been broken, and God has lifted us from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light. We're saved from the penalty of sin, but we're also saved from the power of sin so that we've come to a place where when we were not saved from the penalty of sin, we were unable not to sin. We were unable not to sin because we were unsaved and therefore we experienced the penalty of sin. But now that we are saved from the power of sin, we are able, listen to me, we are able hmm, not to sin. Hmm. But one of these days, we will be saved from the presence of sin so that we will be unable to sin. Well, if you're saved from the penalty of sin, and right now you're saved from the power of sin, Robert Smith, why do you and all of us sin? If we have the power, why? I think Herman Ritterboss in his great work and Brian Chappell in his great work, Holiness by Grace, I think they're right. That sin is more attractive to us than the Savior. Sin is more attractive to us than the Savior. I have a spiritual daughter who struggled with weight problems for a long time. And when she was going to Beast Divinity School, and she'd be hungry, and because she'd have to go up 31, down 31 South, she'd pass by the Krispy Kreme donut store, and it was fine until she saw the sign, hot now. She said, something happened to her hands and something happened to the steering wheel and her car automatically drove into that place and she had to have some donuts. She had to learn to drive home a different way. But when she got full, when she drove home on a full stomach and she saw the sign, hot now, didn't bother because she's satisfied. She's satiated. She's full. And it, long, it no longer held its attraction. There's some things in our lives that are still attracted to us because we love them more than we love the Savior. It is Alexander White, the 19th century Scottish preacher, who reminds us when he says, Lord, I give myself to thee 
And whatever I cannot give, I invite you to take. Because there's some things that are so ingrained and entrenched in us, and we've had them so long. Pet sins. Every door in our hotel, you are the manager of them. But there's just one door in the hotel that says, do not disturb. Don't bother that door. Because that's the door that I must keep. And God wants me and God wants you and God wants us to be more attractive to him than to be attracted to our particular sin. Whether it's a sin of omission or commission. Attitudinally speaking. In terms of temperament. In terms of biases and prejudices. Whatever it is. He wants to be more attractive. Did we hear that song this morning? Marvelous grace of our loving Lord. Grace that exceeds our sin and our guilt. Yonder on Calvary's mount outpoured. There where the blood of the Lamb was spilled. Grace, grace, God's grace. Grace that will pardon and cleanse within. Grace, grace, God's grace. Grace that is greater than all our sin. More love to thee, O Christ. More love to thee. She's justified by faith, and then faith that's really genuine faith, authentic faith, will show up in works so that we will work from salvation rather than for salvation. It's, it's what Peter will talk about in Acts chapter 4, verse 20, when the ecclesiastical, that is the church bosses, say to Peter and John, you got to stop preaching in the name of Jesus. And Peter says... We can't help but to speak the things we've seen and heard. In other words, Peter was saying, we have the can't help it. You are telling us we can't do it. We can't keep from doing it. It's a knee-jerk reaction. It's not something that we're forced to do. It's what Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5, 14. The love of Christ compels, constrains me so that I cannot help but serve him and live for him. Not because I have to do it, but because I just can't keep from doing it. Let me bring this toward an end. These people in Rahab's house heard the walls falling. It was a cataclysmic collapse. My question is, when these walls fell, the walls, according to Flavius Josephus, who was a historian in the first, second century uh, A.D., the church, says that the walls were so wide that two chariots could ride side by side in Jericho on top of these walls without falling over. They were strong walls. In fact, chapter 2 of Joshua, verse 15 says that Rahab's house was built within the walls. And yet the Bible says in Joshua chapter 6, verse 20, that the walls fell down flat. If the walls fell down flat, which really means there's not one stone on top of the other, it's a cataclysmic collapse. And if the walls fell down flat, and chapter 2, verse 15 says that Rahab's house was built within the walls, then how did Rahab and her family survive? If her house was built as a part of the infrastructure of the walls, well, I just 
have a sneaky suspicion. I think it's a sanctified suspicion. You can't keep me from thinking. How did God keep his word through these spies if the walls fell down flat and her house was built within the walls and she and her family were in her house? I think that God did some selective demolition. I really do. I think that God safeguarded that section of the wall so that Rahab and her family who were in the wall and were promised divine protective custody by the spies who made an oath in the name of God, I think that God selectively demolished all the other parts and kept this section standing. You say it makes no sense. It's not logical. You're right. But it's not logical that walls that were so thick that two chariots could ride side by side could be so catastrophically destroyed that every brick and every cement block and every stone would fall down flat. If God could tear down the entire structure, what problem would he have in selectively demolishing the walls? We want to make God logical. We want to make God fit into our nice, rational boxes. But God is not rational. God is supra-rational. He's beyond our thinking. Do you not hear him saying in Isaiah 55, 8 and 9, my ways are not your ways, my thoughts are not your thoughts. As heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts are higher than your thoughts. God doesn't make sense. Got to come to understand that. I can't figure him out. I hear the psalmist saying in Psalm 77 verses 19, verse 19, where he says, God's ways are in the waters and his works are in the sea, but his footprints are not seen. When he comes out of the water, you don't know where he is going. You don't know where he's been because he doesn't leave you the luxury of footprints. I often wonder about uh, this illogical God because he manifests his greatness and I have to recognize and you better recognize that as well as much as you think you know as smart as you think you are all of our brains and all of the world put together is like a thimble in the midst of all of the Atlantic Oceans, Indian Oceans Pacific Oceans in the world because God is greater than our thoughts. The first thing he made on the day of creation, the very first day was light. Let there be light. But he doesn't make the sun until the fourth day. Let there be sun and then moon and then stars because the sun takes and gives light to the moon and the moon reflects light to the stars. How can you have light on the first day until, and not have the sun until the fourth day. That makes sense. Seemed to me like God would have made the sun on the first day and then made the light on the fourth day. No, 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 no. God makes light before he makes the sun because we hear God saying in Revelation 22 and 5 that when we are in eternity future and paradise lost has become paradise regained. In the words of John uh, Milton, the blind uh, essayist. The Bible says that there will be light in the city 
but there will not be any sun or moon. Why? Because God will be the light. God doesn't need the sun. He is light. And whatever you need, God is that. He's illogical. I don't understand how Jonah could spend three days and three nights in an underwater hotel in order to pray and get his priorities right. What about the air conditioning? What about the ventilation? What about all of the acidic ashes that's splashing all over him? What about the um, decompressurization? Uh, what about all of that? Here he is. All of these thousands of feet below in a great fish. How did God keep him alive for three days? Doesn't make sense. It does to me when it says, God made the fish. And if God made the fish, he can custom design the fish. If he wants to put air conditioning in the fish, he can do that. If it gets too cold, he can put heating in the fish. If he wants to, he can put a ventilation system in the fish. And I am not worried about all of that. How in the world then did this happen that the whole wall could fall and God could keep one section standing? I can't figure that out, but I can tell you this. When everything around me has fallen, I'm still standing. No wonder the songwriter said, his oath, his covenant, his blood, support me in the swelling flood. When all around my soul gives way, he then is all my hope and stay. On Christ, the solid rock I stand, all of the ground is sinking sand. Are you ever amazed that you are still standing? Are you amazed that your mind is still saying, are you amazed that you've come through so many difficult operations and so many situations where your health was in great jeopardy, and yet God continues to perpetuate your life? Are you amazed that your relationship is still vibrant? Are you amazed that you can be on a job and you're the only believer there and there's nobody to encourage you? You're the only light in the midst of all of this darkness. You're the only note in the midst of this disharmonious community, and you'll still stand. I want you to know, when everything around you falls, God can keep you standing, young people. God can keep you standing to represent him. Well, Rahab and her family survived the collapse of Jericho because God kept them. And now she has a brand new life because while others have experienced misery in Jericho, she experiences mercy. Her life now is different. I cannot imagine that she would go to the next town and be the best little in that city. I think that her life is changed. How should she? How could she go back to prostitution? How could she go back to that shame and that low type of living. I believe that her life is changed because once Christ encounters you, he changes you. No, you are not sinless, but he gets you to a position where you sin less and sin becomes less appealing to you. Your life begins to change. I've ceased from my wandering and going astray since Jesus came into my heart and the sins which were many all washed away since Jesus came into my heart. Since Jesus came into my heart. Floods of joy. Oh, my soul, like the sea billows roll since Jesus came into my heart. I think that her life has changed. 
I think she also not only has a new life, but she has a new liturgy. I think she worships a different God. She's already testified in chapter 2 of Joshua, verse 11, that God is the God above and he's God below. And she says that even the hearts of everyone here is melting because your God, who's the only true God, fights for you. Her liturgy has changed. Her worship has changed. Her praise has changed. And when you come into a place like this, you recognize that you're not worshiping God, worshiping God who is only transcendent above you, but you're worshiping God who is imminent. He is Emmanuel. He is God with you. And he has given his Holy Spirit to live inside of you so that now God who was without skin because he was spirit and God in the Son who had skin because the word became flesh and dwelt among us is now the God who gets inside of your skin because by the Holy Spirit, he lives in you. I think she not only has a new life and that she has a new liturgy, but she has established a new ecclesiology. That's a big old word that talks about the doctrine of the church. Here was a woman who is a Gentile, but now she is in the body of Christ, even in the Old Testament, because she looked forward to the cross. And Paul says in Galatians 3.28, in Christ there's neither Jew nor Gentile, bond nor free, male nor female. And the church is no longer composed of Jew only. In fact, the church is composed of a Gentile even before the day of Pentecost occurred. I'm glad that the blood of Jesus transcends culture, transcends color, transcends socioeconomic conditions, transcends educational altitudes. It transcends everything so that my brother whom I'm just meeting today who is a white brother and I'm a black brother. What God does is say all of this stuff is superficial. What matters is that the Lord in his life is the Lord in my life. And for eternity, we will be together. It's a new ecclesiology. But she also establishes, in our thinking, a new eschatology, a big old word that talks about the doctrine of last things or future things. And one of these days when we hear the words of John say in Revelation 79, we will recognize that it has finally been fulfilled, that God will cause people from every nation and tribe and kingdom and tongue to be a part of that great celebration where we will be those who have washed our robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Thanks be to God that all of us have a rated R story. We are rated R for redemption. I close the message like I will close it now. Redeemed how I love to proclaim it. Redeemed by the blood of the Lamb. Redeemed by his infinite mercy. His child. And forever I am redeemed. Redeemed. Redeemed by the blood of the Lamb. Redeemed. Redeem his child and forever I am. How many of you have been rated R for redemption?